Welcome to the Growing the Green Economy podcast, where every Monday we talk with the innovators, policy leaders, and activists that are leading the transition to a sustainable green economy. I'm your host, Connor Bronsden, political and tech consultant and policy writer. You can subscribe to the podcast on Spotify or your favorite podcast app. You can also listen on YouTube. Thank you so much for joining me today. Jonathan Hopkins is the Director of Strategic Development for Lime, covering both Canada and the Northwest United States. And in his spare time, he does advocacy for Seattle Subway. He's a graduate of both West Point and Georgetown University and an expert on both national security and transportation. Uh, you can follow his excellent takes at jhop underscore Seattle on Twitter. Thanks so much for joining me today, Jonathan. It's a pleasure to be with you, Connor. One of the big things that's happened this year, it's still 2020 when we're recording this, is that Lyme has really seen some impacts from COVID-19. How has Lyme had to adapt, as well as the broader micromobility community, to the impacts of COVID-19? You know, certainly COVID's been a stunner for all of us this year, you know, in our personal lives and everything else. And certainly in transportation, we've had to adapt for that. You know, what we've noticed, one, we've had to adapt to different types of trip purposes that people have. There's less people in downtowns of cities taking scooters to go grab lunch, but people are still taking scooters to go grab lunch, right? They're oftentimes doing it from home to a greater degree. Overwhelmingly, what we've seen is that people crave having you know, solo open air transportation options. In an era where the air you breathe can infect you, uh, it just simply feels safer. And people are a little bit, due to quarantines and everything else like that, feeling confined at home. So hopping on a scooter to go do things that you do need to do, picking up food or just or running errands or you know just getting out of the house, people are resorting to scooters to a pretty significant degree. So we found that you know there's less tourism. So some tourist uses of scooters are down, but people, when they do use scooters, they're using them for longer trips, sometimes over 30% longer trips. Oh, wow. I didn't realize they'd be that, that significant of a boost. Have you seen any other major changes from that? I think it's just kind of like the trip locations to a degree, fewer trips starting near office buildings and longer trips. But far from fleeing micromobility during this, in many ways, it's cementing micromobility's value Totally. Uh, during this period of time. And then our mission is to support the future of transportation that's clean and environmentally friendly and, you know, electric and shared, right? So this is kind of in many ways like highlighting it's it's become micromobility's moment to help step up and help cities get around. So that part's been really exciting. And, you know, we, we certainly have found that micromobility is here to stay. You know, we've had, for example, Lime this, this last quarter uh, became the first micromobility company to be uh, profitable for a full quarter. The companies being able to work through this time and get the fundamentals of the business down. That's really what's been key during this period of time. And we've never you know, stopped focusing on that and providing clean, environmentally friendly transportation options for people. Obviously, we're going to have COVID continue into 2021. It's going to take a while for any sort of vaccine to come out. But in addition, we're also going to see a new administration that has very different priorities around clean transit and transportation what kind of impact do you potentially see from the Biden administration's clean energy and transportation plans? And I, I got to say, I love that you're, I can see you grinning here right now. Listen to this. <laughs> well, I mean, uh, both public transit and micromobility have gotten a 
very clear indicators from the Biden administration already in what they declared they're going to do. Right. On the public transit side, they said any city over 100,000 people needs federal funding to help them have clean mass transit options and to expand the network of those. And, and the, the same plans from the Biden administration say that we have to support micromobility around the country and, and help that be part of the future. The ways that some countries are doing that is, you know, we see the city of Milan all over France and, and other countries giving people, you know, we, we saw actually during like the last major recession that we had cash for clunkers that helped people get rid of old cars and find more environmentally friendly ones. Well, now many countries are doing that. It's kind of micromobility for clunkers, right? People getting rid of their old car and this then the, the government's subsidizing people buying an e-bike or in some of these cities like Milan, you can subsidize shared rides because maybe it's not ideal for you to own a scooter or to own an e-bike. And so by incentivizing those sorts of behaviors and by investing in mass transit, that's how we solve what's really the existential threat of our age, which is climate change. Because really, on in almost every city, there's a direct correlation between your carbon emissions and the amount of space you give in your city cars. So to transition away from that, as you know, some cities did in the 60s and 70s, we have to create other better options. Mm-hmm. Like here in the Seattle area, we have one of the most audacious mass transit expansion programs in the country. So give people other great options, and then they don't need their cars as much. Yes. Because nobody's view of a great quality life is sitting on a 10-lane freeway stuck in traffic. We will never build ourselves our way out of that. It's actually just giving these better and more delightful options to people that happen to be good for road safety, good for reducing carbon emissions, and good for quality of life. Those sorts of investments have that hat trick. And these have tackled this best in the world, whether it's Oslo or Vienna, have great quality of life and, and lower carbon emissions as a result. And no traffic deaths in places like Helsinki and Oslo. Yeah, the, the no traffic deaths is a great point. Uh, the kind of vision zero that I know in the Seattle area we're working towards, uh, but we have a long way to go. Yeah, we're about 20 a year. Oslo and Helsinki are not that much different than us in size, and they had zero apiece in 2019. Mm. Guess what they did in 2019? They also welcomed thousands of scooters to their cities. Yes. And it's not because scooters alone cause zero traffic deaths. What did is a mentality that anything that reduces car use makes all these other panoply of things better, safety and and quality of life. It makes everything more effective. Yeah. And and I love that you bring up the different investment opportunities under our Biden administration, um, particularly the investment for cities over 100,000 people in clean transit opportunities. And I think the Seattle area where we both live has a a major opportunity because we have six cities that are already meeting that standard, Seattle, Tacoma, Renton, Everett, Bellevue, Kent, and then Federal Way is right on the cusp as well. So there's a clear opportunity for the region to really engage in this conversation and this leadership role around let's really further develop and build out this transportation system. And I know as a board member of Seattle Subway and someone who's been very engaged in the region's transportation system, this is something that you're obviously paying attention to and passionate about. Where, Where do you see opportunities moving forward? Well, there's really kind of two major buckets of opportunities. One is to make sure that despite the recession, that we don't regress. You know, Sound Transit's looking at a reduction in revenues and is concerned about delaying transit expansion two, three, four, five years, right? But this is the last time we should be kind of shooting for a, a lower vision. This is time to push forward, I think. I agree. Right. It's really critical to accelerate those investments 
not slow them down. And so some part of ideally in in the Biden administration, similar but bigger than the AIRA from, you know, the like the last recession, the the stimulus from the last recession, Mm -hmm. to really go big. Because like times when people are struggling and times when we need to cure climate change and carbon emissions, it's not the time for us to go small, right? Uh, When we create good transit systems in cities, it creates a lot of jobs. It gives people a lower cost way of getting around. People in households spend nine to $20,000 a year maintaining their cars, maintaining and, and, and the cost of depreciation and everything else like that. And, you know, we've seen from food banks around the country that people have to go to drive up food banks. Oh, God, those images from Dallas were insane. The concept that anybody has to buy the right to participate in the economic system by owning a car, it really from the last century. And it's, it's really kind of like wrongheaded when people can, like when they don't spend money on housing and, and transportation where they spend it on their families and education is, is what the data shows. Or if you reduce transportation costs, you'll spend it on housing and education, which Jeff Speck, I think talks about a bit. Yeah. And it's a huge opportunity for the economy. If we do that, it's a huge opportunity for healthier families. It's a huge opportunity for people to get better job training so they can continue to contribute at a higher level. It, it's frustrating to see the kind of short-sighted thinking where it says, oh, we have to take these austerity measures instead of saying, no, now is when we really need this stimulus, to your point of you know, building a clean transportation system, yeah. building out new housing developments. The exciting thing, I think, though, is that it does seem like the Biden administration is hearing us on that. And I, I'm curious, as someone with a, both a background in climate policy and national security policy, on your thoughts about, of the recent appointment of John Kerry as a special envoy slash cabinet level national security position on climate change. Well, I mean, I think there's, there's a lot of different people who could fill that role to be great about it. But the recognition here is that it's a global problem that requires global collaboration. And that's where John Kerry is a former secretary of state. And he's always, you know, it was when in the Senate was on the Foreign Affairs Committee for most of his tenure, I think. You know, that's that's really been his focus. And it's just like recognition of the global collaborations required for all of our major problems and especially on climate change. Just to just to go back for a second, the challenge remains for not regressing is just math, right? Sound transit can't have more than one and a half percent of something. Their debt load can't be more than one point five something, right? Um, right? And the state can't go into debt, like they have to balance the budget. So that's really the feds have to play this critical role. There is a second bucket of concerns related to this of like, not just don't regress, but how do we plan for the future? Something that we've recognized in planning for ST3, we've really run up against our our long-term vision and nobody knows what comes next after it. And that actually creates some very Mm -hmm. concrete challenges for the Seattle area. For example, Sound Transit's gonna build a $7 billion tunnel under Seattle that's going to connect downtown Seattle and the Ballard line. Very much akin to a mistake we made in the 50s, two mistakes we made in the 50s. One was building the viaduct. And second, when we built it, there were no downtown exits. There were no off-ramps. Well, because we don't have a long-range plan that goes farther than ST3, Sound Transit doesn't have any authorization to plan for that tunnel that will only operate at 33% capacity because it'll only have a train coming every six minutes. And you can run trains every 90 to 120 seconds, every minute and a half to Right. Like, how do we extend that capacity and actually prepare for a city that's growing rapidly? If you're going to build a $7 billion tunnel, how do you make sure that it has a future that can serve three or four lines? Which means, where do you put off-ramps? Do you plan for a future Aurora line? Like, the E-line bus comes every two minutes at peak when, you know, when everybody was working downtown and it was overloaded, couldn't serve everybody. 
Like it already needs a train. Yeah. And that's without us upzoning major areas. That's without us adding a lot of housing capacity, which we're clearly going to have to because of how fast the region's growing. I mean, really the solution to climate change stuff is the 15 minute city yes. that the mayor talked about, but the Paris is actually doing, mm-hmm. right? The key to become Paris and have a denser transit system and people living closer together so they can walk and get medical care or food or shopping or whatever else the case may be within 15 minutes of their house in a school and a park, right? Yeah. Those are the opportunities, but we actually have to build for it. Most of Paris's metro system, their subway system, would fit between the Ship Canal and 140th Street. And they have a significantly higher population than Seattle does. Yeah, a couple million people. It's not rocket science about what you have to do. It's the visionary leadership that most cities are lacking at this time to actually take action. That is the key, the political barriers to taking action, to doing what we all know needs to be done. I feel like we need kind of an inside-out strategy on it, too, where it can't... City leaders uh, have been holding the bag for the last several years because the Trump administration hasn't wanted to act. And so we kind of need, like, three layers of pressure. We have, in the Puget Sound region, we're, we're lucky to have ST3 happening, but, you know, we need a vision for going farther. What, what's happening with ST4? What's, what's our vision for 2040? What's our vision for 2060, 2080? And then we also need that kind of leadership, to your point, on the city level. I mean, the fact that it took so long for us to get micromobility scooters on the streets of Seattle is absolutely insane. It's, it's been a clear need. You know, we should be building out not only just a regional transit system that hopefully is supported by federal investment, but also, you know, a city-based system that is much more robust, that extends out the rapid ride bus lines, that builds off of 15-minute cities, to your point, and I think also uses micromobility as a connector for all those pieces. Yeah, I was talking to a counselor in Auckland, New Zealand, and they've had scooters for a couple of years, and he said, if a city cares about climate change, which all should, if a city cares about climate change and they're not doing scooters, they're doing it yes. wrong right? It affects more people out of cars than bicycles do. But his statement doesn't just apply to scooters. If a city cares about climate change and they aren't allowing multifamily housing in every part of the city, they're doing it wrong. If a city cares about climate change and they don't allow corner markets and restaurants in every part of the city, it doesn't have to be every parcel zone, but to be able to walk to a corner market, if they don't have that, they're doing it wrong. And if they're not massively expanding transit. And here's actually a key point about transit. I was reading in a Seattle Times article about Vancouver, where they said the best land use policy, the best land use policy is good transportation policy. Or no, actually, the best transportation policy, I had it backwards, but it's both true. The best transportation policy is good land use policy. And they're ahead of us by 20 years on land use. Why? Because they're ahead of us by 20 years on transit development. They put in the first light rail line, the SkyTrain line for Expo 86, right? We opened up in 2009 with Link Light Rail going to the airport. That investment, what we find is there there are those political barriers to making change. The status quo is easiest, and most cities lack the leadership or the willingness of the people to go along with visionary change. It seems like Paris, Barcelona, Amsterdam, and Copenhagen, and London are about the are some of the cities, and then there's some Latin American cities with BRT and even escalators, right? that are doing some visionary change, but it doesn't happen a lot in the United States right now. I think what we can recognize though, is transportation is a tool to unlock that. When we build a light rail line, look at Capitol Hill. The building should be a couple, few stories taller, but we have affordable housing in the hundreds of units. In the core of the city, yeah. Right above a subway, right? Other places are getting up zoned around light rail stations. Transit can unlock that and it forces the question where it hasn't otherwise happened 
you know, yeah. naturally. Um, and it's not just trains, you know, we have rules in this city that about parking rules and everything else like that when you're proximate to a, a 15 minute frequent transit line. But we can really use transit as a tool to unlock that change because transit and land use have to happen together. And all of those ha- things have to happen to help solve climate change, give people good quality of life. Nobody goes to Paris to watch the traffic. They go to Paris because of things in proximity to each other that are walkable and that people love. Who doesn't want to be Paris? But, you know, it takes centuries of development is maybe one of like they developed in a, a walking environment. But we as cities have to have vision and leadership for change to help that happen here. And places like Amsterdam, Barcelona, Copenhagen show it's possible because if you look at their cities in 1969, 1970, all the places that we were loved were chock full of cars and nobody loved it. And I think I'm really hopeful because we have this opportunity right now where people are starting to see the problem. We have regional energy. We have national energy. Biden has a climate mandate coming in. In 2021, uh, his closing message of the campaign is about climate. He's made this commitment to economic investment that is climate friendly, that develops a, a stimulus. I know he doesn't want to call it a Green New Deal, but I mean, essentially what we're doing is we are providing economic stimulus, whether it's through the weatherization program they're proposing or the transit investment that we discuss. And I, I'm, I'm hopeful that if we can keep the pressure on at a local level and at a national level, we can make these big changes. So, so thank you for your leadership on this, Jonathan. Yeah. And we need, we need people who think of climate change as the first not thought, not the afterthought, right? Cities far and wide will talk to their blue in the face about the importance of climate change. But if there's a budgetary decision to be made, they really show it. They rarely think about it. And they they fail to recognize, certainly at the national level, Republicans fail to recognize that investment. It can be an amplifier. Every dollar government puts in can potentially be something that comes back in multiple ways economically and through taxes, et cetera. It's also preventing people from losing their property as water levels. Right? Totally. So, you know, it's 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 a net benefit, but people are most comfortable with what they've seen us do, seen us as a country do for 50 or 100 years and aren't comfortable with the change. Well, hopefully we'll be able to make those changes. And Jonathan, I look forward to working with you both regionally and on other issues as we move forward with this. Uh, thank you so much for coming on today. Do you have any closing thoughts uh, before we finish up? The, the best way that I've talked about this before is that we need to think big, think together and act. No single person is going to solve this. Mayor Durkin by herself isn't going to solve this. Sound Transit by themselves aren't going to solve this. We have to work together on it, but we have to have the big visionary ideas. The third thing is the hardest, act. We've been able to act on transit, but uh, many other ways we need to, to take that same progress and move forward there. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Jonathan. I really appreciate you coming on today and best of luck to you and Lime as you continue to provide people clean transportation options for micromobility. Folks, I really recommend you follow Jonathan on Twitter. He is at jhop underscore Seattle and he is fantastic. He has some great writing that comes out as well. Thank you so much, Jonathan, for coming on. Thanks, Connor. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of Growing the Green Economy. I'll be back next week with Janelle Leafblad, Western Regional Director for Woodworks, talking about mass timber and sustainable construction. If you can take 30 seconds to subscribe, share, and review the show on Apple Podcasts, it drives show discoverability and means the world to me. You can find me on Twitter, YouTube, Twitch, and across social media at Connor Bronsden. Thanks for listening.